All the housing problems that we were discussing in previous years did not disappear. They are there. The supply issue is there. The affordability issue is there. So that's one aspect that we have to take into account. It's really an event, not a condition. Welcome to Post City Magazine's 14th Annual Real Estate Roundtable. This event was recorded virtually in conjunction with the Center for Real Estate and Urban Economics at the Rotman School of Business Management, University of Toronto. The Remax Collection and Great Golf are presenting sponsors for this event. This year's event is moderated by Post City Magazine's Managing Editor Nikki Gill and Editorial Director Ron Johnson. This is part four of an unscripted and unrehearsed discussion involving 12 leading real estate experts regarding the draw of urban living versus the impact of remote working on the Toronto real estate market. Specifically, the panel focuses on affordable and purpose-built housing. Jennifer, for our next question. As former chief planner, you've long been an advocate for affordable housing, and now we have a situation where rental prices are down, condo prices are more affordable, and at our last roundtable, affordability dominated the conversation. So shouldn't we essentially be happy that prices have dropped and in some way try to keep it like this? So I'm with Brad. I I don't think prices have dropped in the condo market over the long term. I think if you look at the trend line, they're going to continue to accelerate as long as we get our city building right. Meaning, to Brian's point, we're building the schools and building the parks and building everything else that is needed to make urban living really appealing. Because you can you can kill a city very quickly in just one generation. Just go look at San Francisco. You know, you have to have all of those amenities as part of the mix in building building your housing as well, or you will completely create an environment where people cannot go through every stage of every stage of life. So I don't think, you know, this is a, a temporary situation that has been brought on by a once in a lifetime, hundred year, whatever pandemic that should not be seen to somehow upending the overall supply challenge, which hasn't gone away. It's not like we suddenly started, people got, got better housed over the course of the pandemic. So I think that's the first thing that we really have to keep in mind. So I'm rejecting the premise that condo prices are going to continue to be down. If Brad's right, he has a very aggressive take on this. But I do think we're already seeing the correction in the condo market. We started seeing it at the end of December already. We started seeing bidding wars again on condos after everyone was saying, you know, everyone's left the city. And then we were seeing bidding wars on condos. It just doesn't make those two things don't go hand in hand. So I think the prognosis is a little bit different than you've portrayed. And I think that as the pandemic lifts, and people do embrace once again the amenities of urban living, um, I think that you will see more demand. I'm partial to Michelle's analysis that there's a portion of the population that is lost and isn't coming back. And I actually think that's true. I think there are people who've discovered a different way of living and maybe they were thinking about leaving the city. Benjamin said it himself that the trends that existed before the pandemic have been accelerated through the pandemic. People that were thinking of downsizing and leaving the city or upsizing, leaving a small place in the city and moving to a Muskoka property or somewhere else, that decision may have been accelerated by the by the pandemic. But will that result in a wholesale significant loss of housing demand that will somehow recalibrate the shortage of supply that we have overall in the city of Toronto? Poof, not even close, not even close. And I think 
there's another layer to this, which we have to be talking about, which is affordable for who? So there's affordable for middle income earners who are people who are earning between 50 and, you know, 110,000 a year, people in entry level positions who are educated, typically they have a little bit of student debt, and they're not even remotely yet thinking about possibly owning if ever. And that is a segment of the population that is going to continue to be squeezed. And it is the segment of the population that was squeezed prior to the pandemic. So that's like people who are working, but there's a mismatch between wage and the cost of housing. That problem did not go away as a result of the pandemic. But then there's a whole other layer that is people who were poorly housed, underhoused, uh, who could not access housing, people who are working poor. And I actually think that we do need to be spending more time actually talking about this divide that has accelerated through the pandemic and the significant amount of job loss that has taken place and overwhelmingly in racialized communities and black communities, we've seen this, we have to be talking about that because there's an element of the population that doesn't actually see any light on the horizon with respect to being able to access housing where they can raise their families. And, you know, forget suburban urban, that's not even a question. It's a stable home that's the problem. And on the affordability side, that challenge as well, it didn't actually get better because of the pandemic. It got worse because now many of those people do not even have jobs to pay the rent. So we have to talk about affordability in a few different scales, but I don't, I think the pandemic has worsened this, not made it better. Okay. And Benjamin, we'll go to you next. Yes. I, I think that uh, going back to the question, to what extent things will last or not, I think that the key question that we should ask ourselves from a housing perspective and any other economic perspective is to what extent COVID-19 is an event or a condition. I think it's an event. And you know why? Because I look at pictures from Toronto, from New York, from London, taken in 1919, a year removed from the Spanish flu of 1918. Life was back to normal. No masks, everybody together partying. That's Toronto a year from now, two years from now. And therefore, exactly as Jennifer said, all the housing problems that we were discussing in previous years did not disappear. They are there. The supply issue is there. The affordability issue is there. So that's one aspect that we have to take into account. Uh, it's really a, an event, not a condition. Now, given that, it means that the affordability aspect is definitely an issue that will continue to be. And I suggest that although the rental market is soft now, it will not be soft a year from now or two years from now. The number of new immigrants will come back. Non-permanent residents, especially students, will come back. In fact, it will rise. The demand will come back. The Airbnb factor will not be the same in terms of supply. You will not have enough supply. Rent will rise again. We know the story. So going back to the conversation that we had two years ago, we need a solution. The solution must be, in my opinion, a rental solution. And this rental solution must be purpose-built. So we need to provide the ability, the motivation for builders to do so. We are starting to see some uh, joint ventures in this direction. That's the direction we should go. It should be purpose-built, designed, to enhance affordability in this city. Otherwise, it will be totally unaffordable. Can I make a comment there quickly about that? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing about COVID is that, you know, this wasn't a recession caused by, you know, um, economics. It was, it was brought on by, you know, government reacting to a virus and creating an artificial recession, which 
Nobody here wants to be in. No one's in the mindset right now where they want to be in a recession. Nobody was afraid before COVID of buying things or spending money and jobs were plentiful. So it is just a temporary blip on the horizon. But with respect to purpose-built housing, I mean, there is no solution. I hate to be the bearer of bad news here. There is no solution to affordable housing. It's always going to be a massive problem. We're never going to fix it. We can do a little bit with it. It is not going to come from the private sector. So five years ago, when you could buy land for $50 a foot downtown, and you could build a condo for $200 a square foot in hard cost, and you could rent it for $4 a square foot, the economics made sense. We're now at a position where rents have retreated five years. They'll go back up again. But the model today is we're at five years ago rent. Cost of building a high-rise building in the city of Toronto now is $350 to $400 a square foot for gross construction area. And land prices for zoned land are close to $300 a square foot. You need to be able to rent apartments for $5 a square foot across the board. Studios, ones, twos, threes. Never going to happen. Jennifer, did you want to jump in there? Oh, I don't know where to begin, but um, so <laughs> I've created a company that is building purpose-built affordable rental that is designed for middle-income earners, and we have over 2,000 units under development right now in the city of Toronto, and the good, the good news is that we know the minute those units are available, they will be occupied because there are so many people in that category who simply do not have um, access to housing that they can afford. So it's uh, kind of a low risk proposition, actually building affordable rental because there's such incredible demand for affordable rental. There's actually a really great viable approach to this. And our approach is one that involves collaborating with existing landowners who have an interest in building affordable rental housing for whatever reason that interest might be. Think of churches, think of universities. Universities have an incredible interest in affordable housing because they have trouble attracting faculty in this market. So there's a viable business model. Interestingly, more and more developers in the city of Toronto are actually getting into this space precisely because there is such unrelenting demand. And we welcome that. Uh, Dream just announced this week that they've created a new arm of impact investing that is focused specifically on affordable housing and environmentally sustainable objectives. We know that West Bank has created creative housing, which is also focused on the affordable purpose-built rental space. So, you know, we'll just go ahead and do it, Brad. You can watch from the sidelines. Uh, but there's lots of us in this space that see the importance to the long-term thriving and viability of the city of ensuring that everyone has access to housing. It's about the ecosystem of this house city. It's about social justice. It's about making sure that our city 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now is a place that is continuing to grow, welcoming to newcomers, uh, and a place that is, um, I think, the kind of place that many of us want to live. You know, usually in the live event, they put me between the two of them. It <laughs> I'm glad that I'm not between the two of them now. Sorry, I, had to do I would it. just like to rebut that quickly. Listen, everything you've said is absolutely true. I'm by no means saying it's not something that we want to try to reach for. I'm saying it's not going to be possible in Toronto. And, and you just proved that because you're talking about, you, so you're talking about people that are subsidizing the cost of land through a social reason, right? So the problem is in, in the real world, in, the, in economies where you have to buy land and you buy rezoned land, 
is selling today in Toronto for $300 a buildable foot. When you translate that to sellable space, it's $400 a foot. The cost of constructing a basic high-rise 40-story building is $350 a square foot in gross construction area. That's more like $500 a square foot in sellable. So you're already at $900 a square foot. This is the economics, I'm not making this up. So unless you want to subsidize it in some way, if you're getting $4 a foot gross and your cost just without soft costs and financing and, and tariffs is 900, nobody, no, no REIT or, or a publicly traded company that needs to make a profit on behalf of its shareholders is going to lose money building this housing. But yes, if there is government activity that is allowing subsidies for, for, for costs to come down. And if landowners feel the social urge to give their land away, like the U of T or, or churches, absolutely that can happen. But I'm saying free market, free market housing for rent is dead. So I'll just make a quick little response to that, which is that there's a vast amount of land in the city that is owned by not-for-profits and other entities that have an interest other than trading land. And the good news is many of these entities have held this land for a very long period of time. So the equation that you just gave, the math actually doesn't matter because the land cost is not relevant to that equation. In addition, there's incentives that have been put in place by the federal government around the forgiveness of fees for affordable housing that do make it a viable proposition. So I think there's there's some policy mechanisms that combine with some partnerships, which is how it's always been done. 60 years ago, when we were building affordable housing, it was created through policy incentives and a series of partnerships. It's the same way it will be done in the future. The one part I will agree on is it won't be done by sort of free market approach but I would argue there's not much of a free market approach in any of our housing market uh, because there's so many different government mechanisms, low interest rates that determine the viability of being able to build. Thank you for listening to part four of Post City Magazine's Real Estate Roundtable brought to you by the Remax Collection in Great Gulf. To hear the panel discuss investment and renovations and their predictions for the real estate market in the coming year, please download part five.